Good morning, church. Wow. It's, I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling warm. Yeah, it's getting warmer, isn't it? But thank God for warm weather and more sunlight. How, how's everyone doing this morning? Um, I don't know about you guys, but um, that just time of worship uh, was an amazing time of worship. Um, and I almost feel like I could just sort of walk off the stage now and just uh, let us all go and worship God because there was so much that was brought on there that was just, it's like you guys are doing the preach already. Um, so it's wonderful because God is amongst his people and he's working um, and he's doing wonderful things. So um, we come to the book of Exodus. If you're here for the first time um, with us, um, welcome again. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Church. And we've been going through the book of Exodus well, for the past few weeks now. And it's such a rich and packed book full of goodness um, that I feel like I've been stitched up um, <laughs> because I've been told to cover three chapters in, in 40 minutes. And if anyone knows, I can go on sometimes. So it's a bit of a stitch up, to be honest. But um, we'll, 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 we'll plug and we'll carry it. Um, so we... We learned last week, we had a wonderful time last week, um, worshiping and celebrating. Um, we learned uh, about one of the most epic scenes in all of human history, where God rescues his people in the most spectacular way. Um, you know, as if the things that happened in Egypt wasn't spectacular enough, he took them to the front of a sea and then basically just made the sea, um, raised them up like curtains and the people walked on dry land. And they got onto the other side and they saw their enemies completely wiped out. And God said, wow. And, and, and they had a massive, massive celebration. And we celebrated last week. And so that was, uh, that was one of my favorite scenes. I don't know if anyone has ever seen The Prince of Egypt. Um, I know all the chorus in that. Um, I, think, I think, I mean, uh, don't tempt me. Um, it, is, it is an amazing, amazing story. Um, but the story doesn't end because the Prince of Egypt story kind of ends um, after they cross the, you know, the Red Sea and the great deliverance of the Red Sea. But the story continues and we read them. So today I'm going to be looking um, at uh, Exodus 15, um, going from um, verses 22 all the way to chapter 18, verses 27. Can you, can you guys hear me properly? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So we see the children of Israel... Um, had this amazing rescue where they come out onto the other side of the Red Sea and they celebrated. And so now the euphoria is over. Now they are in the, um, the Arabian desert and there is nothing in front of them but hills and desolation. But we see earlier on in Exodus 13 where God says to his people, um, Exodus 13, 17, and Pharaoh let the people go. But God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God had a plan for leading his children, his people down this way, taking them to the desert. Because God knew that if they went up truly quicker routes, they would find the Philistines who were seasoned warriors. And God knew his people were not ready yet. So he was protecting them by sending them to the desert, right? But God didn't really tell them these things. They found themselves in a desert. 
And then it goes on to say, if we look at Exodus 15, 22, I'll read from 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. There they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. They, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Father, we thank you because your word is life. We thank you um, because you have a plan and a purpose. We thank you because it is your plan and your will that will prevail above all plans of men. We pray, Lord, today that it will be your plan, your will, your purpose that prevails. Not a plan of any man, not a thought of any man, but your plan, oh God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the children of Israel are in this desert. Has anyone ever been to a desert? Anyone been on holiday to a desert place? I can see some hands go up, places like where people been to, what, Saudi, Dubai? Yeah? What's that? Negev. The Negev. All right, that's hardcore. You know, it's hardcore there. It's not just called a desert, it's called the Negev. You know that, wow, man, you don't want to be found in there without water. Um, so if you've, if you've been to a, a desert place, it is a, a desolate place. It's an empty place. Um, it's a place of silence. Um, it gets really hot in the desert. Sometimes it can go up, um, the Arabian desert can go up to like 50 degrees Celsius, and then it becomes sub-zero at night. So massive, massive temperature swings in desert. No water, no food, a harsh place. This is where God leads his people to. It is said that uh, the human body, an average human body can survive three days without water, but you could go longer without water sometimes, but three days, especially if you're active and you're doing things, it's difficult to survive three days without water. And water is essential, crucial. Um, I did some little bit of research that water is essential for delivering oxygen across our body. If anyone's a doctor in, in, in the room today and I'm wrong, you can speak to me about this later on. Um, it is essential for transporting toxins, removing toxins from the cell, lubricating the joints of the body and spinal cord, balancing the acidity and the alkalinity of, of the body. I didn't want to say pH, because that would make me look a bit too, um, yeah. It aids with digestion, producing of saliva, which is crucial for digestion. It regulates the body temperature. That's why I have two bottles or two cups of water beside me here. It helps the brain generate important hormones. It's a very essential. That's why they say, um, you know, you are you should drink, I think, two liters of water, right, every day. It's very important. But the, the place of the desert is a place without water. And God brought his people to this place. 
And so for them, they find themselves, they've conquered the Egyptians, and now they see this massive enemy that doesn't say anything, doesn't speak, doesn't shout, but it's just there, and it's vast. It's the desert. And what do they do? They grumble against God. They grumble against God. And we see this as a common thing. And they grumble against Moses. It says the government against Moses. And later Moses says, you're not grumbling against me, you're grumbling against God. And what does Moses do? He cries out to the Lord. And God graciously responds by saying to Moses, there's a log there, chuck it in that bitter water. That water that is probably very salty because it's like an evaporated type of desert salty water. Chuck it in there and the water becomes sweet and drinkable. And God then said something to them. He said that he, he said, if you would diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, I'll put none of the diseases on the Egyptians that I put um, on you that I put, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And there there's a name of God there. It's called Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha. God is saying that I am your healer. There's something that we're going to see as we go through here that as they go through the desert, God reveals himself to his people. You see, he revealed himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And Moses says, what is your name? And, and he says, Yahweh. And here he says to his people, I am the Lord, your healer. God reminds his people that I turn bitter things into sweet things. But first, you must trust in me. And then we read again from um, chapter um, 16, 1 to 15. Uh, I'll read a little bit here. They sat out. They set out, came from healing, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people grumbled against Moses. That's two weeks. It's not four months, two weeks. This is the second occasion of grumbling against Moses. And I'll go on to, um, and what did they say? They said, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, where we sat by meat of pots, um, pots of meat and ate bread to the full, for you brought us into this wilderness to kill us, the whole assembly with hunger. So these guys are desperately hungry, which is understandable because they're in the desert. But then they say, in Egypt, we were sat around pots of meat. Does anybody remember them sitting around pots of meat a few chapters ago? They were getting their butts kicked. They were being enslaved, being brutalized. There was an entire genocide being carried out upon them. But at this point now, in two weeks, just two weeks, they said, oh, man. Oh, do you remember that banquet we had in Egypt? Oh, man, that was so good. Oh, yeah, you, you remember that buffalo? Oh, man. Venison, oh, it was so nice. They were making this thing up. They were slandering God. They said, God, you've brought us out of Egypt so you can kill us in the desert. A slander against God. And Moses, this wasn't lost to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread to, the, to, to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they walk in my law. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses said to all the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because still, they're still, after the Red Sea, they're still not sure. Was it God? They're still not sure. 
And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And so it, it came to pass. And then the Lord said to Moses in verses 9, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And in the evening came, verse 13, in the evening came, covered the camp, and in the morning dew laid around the camp. And so we see here God providing for his people. They wanted food. They were talking about meat. So what does God do? He sends quail meat in the middle of a desert. And in the morning, he sends this thing that first comes with the dew of the morning. And then what settles afterwards is this little flaky-looking substance. And it describes what this is. And when the dew had gone up, there was, a, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Kind of like uh, cornflakes, I think. <laughs> fine as frost on the ground. Frost is, that's it. <laughs> when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you. This is what the Lord commands. Before I go into that, we, we, we all, people that, you know, know these things might know about manna, right? We say manna. This is the bread God gives to people, manna. We say manna from heaven. But we pronounce it incorrectly. It's not manna. It's manna. There's an inflection at the end of it. Because it's a question. Manna means, or manna means, what is it? Right? So we're saying, manna? 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 Very interesting story. I just, I just thought that was very um, interesting. Sorry. I'm getting too much into this. And it says in, in verse 6, and the, this is what the Lord commands. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. And you should take an omer, I think that's about two liters, according to the number of the person that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more. Um, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. Because they were in the desert. They were like, it might not come back tomorrow. So what happened? It bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. By morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. Two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy day to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning and Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there was no worms. So we had this episode of God's provision to the people in the form of manna. And God says, each day you gather manna. Gather two liters 
for the amount of people in, in your tent and don't leave anything over. Don't save some, don't try and gather extra save, to save some over for the next day because there's going to be more coming tomorrow. But many of them didn't believe God because maybe he hadn't made himself clear at this point. But they said, we'll leave, we'll leave some over. And what happened? It became a worm and it stank. But God said on the sixth day, gather enough for the next day because there's not going to be any on the seventh day. And so we see what God is trying to um, tell his people here, which is, I am the God that provides for each day. I give you enough adequate for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll supply that for you also. But God wants his people to know something else, which is he provides for them in their rest. That's why no man have appeared on the seventh day. That's why Moses said in Exodus 16, 28, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. God has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. In Exodus um, 17, 1 to 7, we see the people go into a place, Rephidim. Um, and Rephidim means rest. And as they leave where they were before, where they first received manna, and they were going deeper into the desert, they get to this place, Rephidim, and again, there's no water. So they said, Moses, you want to kill us? And they got so angry, and they wanted to stone Moses. They almost wanted to stone Moses. And then Moses cried out to the Lord again. So this is the third instance of grumbling. And Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, strike that rock. I'll stand by the rock. Bring the elders there and strike that rock. And water came forth, and they had enough to drink. And we see God here, very mercifully, People, his people were grumbling, and yet it was providing for them. I found it very interesting because we were, as we were worshiping this morning, and uh, I don't know the name of the lady who brought something out. She said there was someone who is complaining and angry with God and saying, I'm done with you, God. God is, God is saying, I, I give you what you need. I, I'm not going to leave you in the desert to die. I'm going to sort you out. You have to understand something, that God's image in many ways is tied to his people. If his people who are called by his name suffer and die and are disgraced, then he gets some of that also. God didn't rescue the people of Israel so that they could wither away in the desert. But they didn't see this. And then the third, I told you this was a bit of a stitch up because there's a lot they're going through. But I am gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hone in into, into some things here. We look at Exodus 17, 8 to 15. Here was a, a, the first pitch battle of the Israelites against the Amalekites. Now, the interesting thing about the Amalekites is that they're actually relatives of the Israelites. Now, Amalek was one of the children of the first son of, the first son of Esau. Um, uh, if you remember your, your scripture, Esau was the elder brother from Isaac. Isaac was the um, son of Abraham. And Isaac had Esau and Jacob. Jacob later became Israel, right? Um, and then Esau and Israel kind of went a separate way because Esau cheated, um, or Israel cheated um, uh, Jacob, or Esau rather. Um, and there was this enmity there between them. 
which is sort of prophesied from the start. So this, this war, this battle we see in Exodus 17, 8 to 15, essentially is a, a sibling rivalry of sorts. And we see Moses say to Joshua, go gather all the young men, or go gather the men, not the young men, but the men, to go into battle. Now, remember, these guys, at best, these guys were slaves. For 400, I think 430 years, they were slaves in Egypt. They were not trained warriors. But this was their first battle. And so Joshua goes, gathers the men, they go fight Amalek. And then what does Moses do? Moses gets up to a high place and then raises his, his hand and holds the staff in the other hand. But Moses is just a human being, and so his hands starts to get a bit tired. And as, as his hands get tired and he's waning, you notice the people of Israel start losing the battle. And then Moses will try to get his hands back up again, and the people of Israel will, will rally, and they will fight, and they will gain ground over the Amalekites. And this sort of went on, and after a while, Moses was like, I'm an old geezer. There's only so much holding my hands I can do. And so Aaron and her came beside Moses, held his hand up. And he, he said, from morning to evening, they held Moses' hand. They stood there. I'm not quite sure how they did it. Maybe they put their shoulder there, and Moses held his hand. But they, they somehow supported him, and he held his hand up. And all the while, whilst his hand was held up, the children of Israel gained the ground and won a great victory over Amalek and the Amalekites. And after the, the battle, Moses builds an altar and declared there and says, the Lord is my banner, which is Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. That's another name for God. Now, a banner is a, a standard, a flag, a totem, or, or an image on the end of a pole that is lifted up by the armies as they go into war. And it served as a, a rallying point for the men who were in the battle, a, 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 a time when they are sort of under pressure, the person holding the standard will hold it high, and people will rally towards the standard, and they will push forward. It is said that the, the Romans, the famous Roman standard, which is like an eagle, the, the aquila, sometimes the general, if he sees his men losing the battle, will remove the standard and chuck it right into the enemies. Because for the Roman soldiers, it was a disgrace for their standards to be captured by the enemy. So they will chase after the standard and they will fight like tigers. So the standard is a rallying point, a powerful thing. And we know famously today, the Americans, some might say obnoxiously, like to sing about the star-spangled banner. I see, I see an American sister in the room smiling. But it's something that is, they rally around. The banner, the entire American national anthem is literally about their banner. That's all it is. Because it's, it's, it's what motivates them They rally around it. There's the famous scene in Iwo Jima of certain men sort of pulling the American flag up. But for the people of God, our banner is the throne of God. It is God himself. He is our banner. The people of God rally to God in their time of need. We hold our arms aloft in prayer. And we stay in prayer until victory is won. He's a banner that is greater than any army, than any banner, than any other rallying symbol. That's our God. And so we see God's provision in battle. And then finally, Exodus 18, 1, 27. Again, I'm not going to read 
um, this. Again, I've given you um, what, where, where this are, so you can read it in, in your time. But we see um, Jethro come to uh, um, Moses with Zipporah, Moses' wife, and Moses' two son, sons. And it says that Moses has sent Zipporah away. We're not, we're not quite sure if they had a fight or fallen out, or Moses was trying to protect her during the exodus and to prevent her from being uh, attacked or whatever it was. But he sent his wife and his, and his sons away to be with um, um, Zipporah's father, Jethro, who was a high priest of Midian. So Jethro came back with Moses' family, and Moses recants to Jethro, all the wonderful things God had done, the, the, the plagues in Egypt, the, the, the victory at the Red Sea, manna, everything. And Jethro's heart was so filled with joy. And he gave thanks to God and he worshiped God and he sacrificed to God. And it's a very important picture there where it's the first time there was this coming together of the Jewish world and the Gentile world, coming together to worship God. And the next day, Jethro observed Moses as he goes about his business. And Moses sits in a place, and the whole children of Israel, as it were, brought their case before him. Now, we notice at least more than, slightly more than one million, at least, um, people who left um, Egypt. And so Moses essentially was a governor of one million people. And he alone was adjudicating cases between these people. And he was there, morning to night. And Jethro looked at him and says, you're going to kill yourself. He says, don't, don't do this. You, 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 could, you could do it in a better way. So what does Jethro say to him? Now obey my voice. I will give you advice. God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the law and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from among the people Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people, a chief of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and then let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all these people, and, and these people also will go to their place in peace. So what you had was Moses trying to adjudicate for the entire one million, over one million people, children of Israel. You can't possibly go through that amount of people in a single day. So you had a lot of people going back home discontented. Upset, oh, I've been waiting for ages. I never got a chance to see Moses. And Jethro was like, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere with this. And what I found very curious about this is that we've been talking about deserts and the lack of water, the lack of food. But what I saw here was that Moses lacked wisdom. He was going through his own desert also. He was a governor of one million people, but he lacked wisdom. And yet, without even realizing it, God looked at him and thought, you need help, mate. And so he brought Jethro, and he gave him wisdom. And that made life much easier in managing the affairs of the children of Israel. And as we read here about the desert events the, in the life of the children of Israel, it is very obvious, even in our own day, that many of us are walking through our own deserts, our own place of lack and insurmountable challenges. For some of us, it could be the challenges of old age. The 
I know people who are old and say it's a difficult thing to become old. More challenges with moving the body and doing certain, certain things. For some, it's a challenge of chronic illness. For some, it could be the lack of sort of marital relations. Or for some, it could be a marriage that looks like it's coming to an end. That's a form of a desert. For some, it could be childlessness or joblessness or financial difficulty. But when we read these three chapters, God says one thing. He says, I provide and you trust. I provide and you trust. He says, I provide bread, water, and wisdom. You trust. Why? Because he's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. I heal. You trust because he's Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord that heals. He says, I give victory. You trust. He's Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And so, that's, that's very good. But, how can we trust God in a desert? Let's get down to the practicalities. God says, trust me and I'll provide. Okay, how do I trust you? Number one, we trust God in prayer, not in grumbling. Every time there was a problem, what did the people of Israel do? They grumbled. But what did Moses do? He cried out to the Lord. Philippians 4, 6 or 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in, pre- but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't hide it. He sees it. We're talking about it this morning. God sees you. He knows what you're going through. Come to him. Let your request be made known. Oh, it's going to take half an hour, two hours. Hey, it's been around since all eternity. And it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. What that means is the peace of God, when there's a desert in front of you and everything looks bleak, yet you have assurance that God is on your case. And people look at you and go, are you insane? You're going through a desert. Why aren't you? Like, why is your hair not on fire? Why? Because you've taken it to God. You've taken it to the one that provides. Pray. Stay in the place of prayer. We are going through a time of prayer as a church today. And there's a a testament I'm going to read um, to you guys later. But God works and moves in prayers. He says the prayers of the righteous affects much. Again, in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and to be given to him. He didn't say you've got to learn how to do a somersault and a backflip and then learn to stand without stumbling. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And what does he do? He gives generously. Stay in the place of prayer. Don't grumble. You see later on, in the life of the children of Israel, because they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled, it turned into rebellion, full-fledged rebellion. And God said, I'm done with these people. You're not going to get into the promised land. So we have to curb the grumbling. 
and spend more time in prayer. Grumbling is not prayer, okay? Secondly, how do we trust God in our desert? Obedience, not in rebellion. Remember what it says in Exodus 15, 26. If you would diligently listen to the voice of your Lord, the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, the Egyptians suffered because they rebelled against God. They said, no, I am bigger than God. God said, don't rebel. Obey me. It is not what the world says. It is what the word says. Obey. Trust in God. Obedience is a form of trust. It's a form of trust. That's all it is. Just, just trust him. Thirdly, how do we trust God in our desert? We rest. We rest in God, not in the power of our strength. We see Exodus 16, uh, we see this in Exodus 16, um, verses 23 to 26, where God basically says to them, there's a day I want you to rest, okay? I want you to rest. He says, it's a Sabbath for you. Now, in our culture, we don't quite get the idea of rest and work. Some people want to rest too much. Some people are asking for a three-day week, or is it a four-day week? I'm not quite sure which, what way it is. But it's like, at that point, it doesn't really matter anymore, to be honest. <laughs> and, and some people will advocate for the Elon Musk work ethic, which is 120 hours a week work. I, I, had, to, I had to whip out a calculator and thought, is, that, is there enough hours in the week? So we don't actually get it, the idea of rest and the idea of work. And some people living in the church see work as a bad thing. Oh, I've got to get up to work again. But work was God-given. God gave man. That was the first thing God, the first thing God gave man after he gave him breath was to work. He gave him work. Before he gave him a, a woman, he gave him work. So for some young men in here, right, if you don't have work yet, stop looking at that lady. <laughs> right? Get work in your life first. Got to follow the right order of things. So, work is good, but what happened? Sin came, and then sin corrupted the blessing of work. God said, you will suffer in your toiling. You will, you will toil without fruit. You will labor in vain. There will be ineffectiveness, and there will be redundancies, and there will just be things in, in the way you work that doesn't yield fruit to the way you worked before. That's what sin did. That's why we think, why is this so difficult? Because of sin. But work itself is not bad. So we, as Christians, have to get our theology right. But what does that mean? God says, six days you work. In our culture, we say five days you work and then two days you rest. That's not true. Six days you work. That doesn't mean you go to the office on the sixth day. That's not what I'm saying. Because we, we think work is, I'm in the office, behind my computer, I'm working. That's not work. You, on the sixth day, you got a shed, that's about to fall down, go and fix your shed. That's not time for you to go and watch a game of football. Your kids need to go swimming, take them to swimming. You need to go out into the town. There's some people that's, that, that need to hear the gospel. That's a perfect day to go and do God's work. That's work. Clean your house. 
That's work. You, you, you thought I was going to sell you to go back to your office on, on the Saturday. That's not, that's not what I was, I'm, I'm going, going to in this place. But God said, you work for six days, but on the seventh day, you rest. He said, do all your work on the six days. That seventh day, you rest. We look at our society today, our society today and it's too much play, too much work. And we're all messed up. And we'll later see that later on as we get to the commandment. When we get to the fourth commandment, it says, um, you know, it's, a two, it's actually a two-part commandment. You shall work, but on the Sabbath day, you shall rest. The, the Lord, our God, is a God of both work and of rest. But by the time of Christ, the Jewish people had, 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 had made the Sabbath into an idol. They, they sort of worshipped the Sabbath. And what does Jesus Christ say to them in Mark, 20, in Mark 2, 27? It says, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You have a day to rest because God made it for you to recuperate, to refresh. God rested. He doesn't need to rest. He's the God that doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't doze off on the steering wheel. But even he rested. And he wants to show and model something for us. Why, why is it important to rest? Because you have to understand sometimes we work a lot of the times because we are trying to get ahead or do things or do things fundamentally in our own power. God says, when you rest, you are trusting in me, the God of provision. It is better, as it says in Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to take refuge, take rest in the Lord than to trust in man. The fourth way we trust in God in the desert is seeking first his kingdom, not building our empires. Now, Moses is an amazing character. He just gets on with it. He has his failings and he has his fears, but he gets on with it. And he's there leading these people and he's just working and just doing what he thinks is the, is the right thing to do. But there was no wisdom in there. But Moses was concerned about the people of God. He, he loved the people of God. He was concerned for the kingdom of God. And that's why we see Moses, as he was faithfully serving God, the best way he knew how, God said, you, you need wisdom, mate. And he brought that to him. Seeking God first is a way to trust God in your desert. What is God calling you to do in his kingdom? Is it an assignment that appears beyond human capacity? God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is magnified in your weakness. Christ reminds us in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, that God knows exactly what we need. Have you ever seen a bird that is planning that, oh, mate, next week we've got to set a trap to catch that insect? Birds don't do that. Why? They don't do that. They don't need to because God provides them. God says, I, I look after the birds. I look after creatures that are here today and are dead next week. They're not even made in my image. Don't you think I'm going to care for you? You are called by my name. I said, so the Lord knows you need these things. I need water. Of course he knows you need He made you. 
He knows you need water to lubricate your joints and for the toxins in your cells. And all. He made it. Of course he knows. But what does he say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. I'm just going to share something very quickly. There's a, a, a friend, a brother here in, in the church. Um, he, he was convinced that God wants them to back in Ipswich, um, to be part of the church here and to serve God in Ipswich. And so in faith, they moved first, but they didn't find a house. So they found a place, thankfully, for their daughter. But the house front was looking very, very dicey. So he goes on to say, when the idea of moving back was planted in our hearts, God had to overturn 8 million cladding scandal issue, which is issue he, he had in London with the house they had, secure a permanent job, get a place at our preferred school for our daughter, where we were rejected many times, formally by asking the school, but the admin officer asked us to have hope as some people leave during summers. But we got a place, a school place in late July. When we moved to Ipswich in August and put the flat in London on the market, we also found the house we wanted, so everything looked hunky-dory. We felt logically everything is going well, when suddenly the sale fell through. That didn't make sense. And we really were asking God why. Through support from members of the church, we kept praying and worshiping and knew God is always in control. We received another offer for our flat in December and consecutively reduced the offer price for the house we wanted to buy by, at least by 8% less, which the vendor agreed on Christmas Eve and we received the keys on the 10th of February. He said, when the sale and purchase collapsed in October, deep in my core, I was wondering if God didn't want us in Ipswich. On that Sunday, a random bloke who we never met before had visited Hope from London. He knew Mark Crawley. He went out of his way and stopped me and said something in the lines of, whatever you think you're going through right now, God wants you to be in this town and not look back. A random bloke. I said, that really freaked me out. <laughs> I started crying in front of him. This is a person who says, your kingdom first, Lord. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't have all my ducks in a row. But your kingdom first. And what does it do? He said, okay, well, get, the, get our daughter in school. That worked well. House, let's get a house. Falls through. And he's just there like, but I need a house. God's like, I know. But God's like, I want to get, get you that house at a discount. <laughs> you just have to wait a bit longer. God sees. We, we heard this money. God sees. He knows. He knows. What does this mean for us? I think I'll do you a great disservice this morning if I, if I don't tell you that everything we hear about today is not about really making our pockets fatter with money or making our, the pots in our house full of meat and fish. That's not fundamentally what it's all about. Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, he reminds his disciples, he said that all that was written in the law of Moses, the five books, in the books of the prophets, 
in the psalm is about me. So what we've been reading about this morning has been about Jesus. What is, how, how, does that, how does that make sense? Christ says in John 6, he says that he is the bread of life. The ultimate manna from God. He says in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And what happened? They died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ is the bread. Christ is our healer. We read in Isaiah 53, 5. He is the one that heals our diseases, both physical and spiritual. That's why it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the beating that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What a contrast there. He was wounded that our wounds may be closed. He was punished that we may have peace. Christ is our healer. Christ is our victor. My, there are many names of Jesus and, you know, Yeshua, in the name of Christ, salvation. But one name I like to give him is the, the broad-chested one because the guy, can, he can take weight. He can, he can carry stuff. And he's a champion. He gives us ultimate victory over sin and death. And we read in Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside Nailing it on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authority and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's the victor. We don't stand in guilt today because Christ won the victory. That's what it means. I'm going to invite the band to come up if we have time. I invite the band to come up. What do we need in our desert? We need more Christ. Are you an old timer? You've known, I've known, known God for 50 years. Well, then you need Christ because he's the everlasting one. He's the one that gives grace and vigor to the elderly. Are you a newbie in the faith? Are you new in the faith? I only know God about six months ago. Well, I've been working with the Lord about five years or ten years, I'm still young in the faith, then you need Christ. He's the bread and water for nourishment for you to grow and become mature. Are you a stranger to Christ? Do you not know Christ? Perhaps this is your first time. Then hear the words of Christ, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Christ says, come to me, all you will labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I find it incredible that the one that sits at the head of the angelic host says, I am lowly at heart. Come to me. I am meek at heart. I am tender-hearted. I am gentle and lowly at heart. I want to take your yoke and your burden, which is very heavy, and I want to give you my light burden. That's what Christ says. And so today, there's a call. If you're young, if you're old, or if you don't even know Christ, Christ says you need me in your desert. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you are the only one that can satisfy and you choose to satisfy us even though we don't deserve it. And Lord, I just pray for those here who are grumbling. Lord, let them trust in you. Open their hearts to the God that provides so bountifully. I pray for those who do not know you. May they know Christ, the one who was crucified and crushed for our sin. Do a work in our hearts, Lord, today. We pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.